0: Hello and welcome to the first episode of our new FIS podcast, Castaway, keeping you in the know on the shipping and commodity world where we're all at home quarantined. We know that working and business has changed dramatically in the past couple of months, so developing a range of resources to help keep you up to date on everything happening. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit our website, www.freightinvestorservices.com or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. FIS is fully functional, every broker, every office, and every team is ready to help you with pricing, research, and operational assistance. And we have to uh, introduce who we have on the podcast this week. We do have myself, Chris, a fuel law and part-time tanker FA broker. We also have in London, Alex, our MD of strategy for FIS. Uh, from home, we have Kerry, head of business development. And all the way from Singapore, we have Tom, our director of Asia. Hello, guys. Thank you for joining me.
1: Hi, Chris. Hi, Chris.
0: Hi there. Good morning. Well, what a uh, incredible couple of months we've had. I mean, it's been unprecedented, as we said in the intro. This has been a huge economic impact, a huge you know, personal impact for people affected by this virus. I mean, let's just check on everybody how it's going. How is everyone dealing with uh, working from home or in terms of in London, a very sparsely populated office? Alex, how are you finding it in terms of this kind of working environment having hardly anybody in?
2: It's uh, disconcerting, but it's growing on me. Getting into work isn't proving too hard, taking Uber where possible. Very brave drivers doing their job, obviously heeding what uh, London Travel for London have said, not using the tube. Our office has been pretty well maintained. It's quiet, but everyone seems to be getting on with it. I mean, I don't want to refer to the Blitz Spirits. I think it's a bit naff, but it, it's working. London, London is keeping on going.
0: And, Kerry, how are you finding it from home?
3: Absolutely, I agree. I think our IT and systems team have put in an incredible system for working, uh, from working from home, for all of us. Uh, uh, we have every broker online now, and I've been able to carry on, if not at 100%, probably at 95% uh, for the moment. Uh, uh, it's obviously an adjustment to be indoors all day long, but, uh, but in terms of actual access to the systems, it's worked better than I originally thought it would do.
0: And Tom, all the way from Singapore. I mean, you've just gone into to lockdown, what we've been on for just over a week here in London. Uh, how are you finding it out there?
1: Ah, uh, yeah, so far so good. Uh, day two uh, of hopefully not too many. Um, but uh, as the guys have said, we are in a reasonable position technology-wise. So it's just a slight adjustment to hearing people chattering down the line rather than being able to talk to them in the office. But um, our Shanghai team are slowly filtering back into the office on a more permanent basis now Uh, they've been dealing with what we're all dealing with now for a couple of months but they seem to be coming out the other side so um, fingers crossed I guess that it's a, a similar time frame or less for us
0: people are now experiencing working from home a lot more remote access do you think that will continue when we're allowed back or is this the start of something a more greater change of how we work
2: well, I think we're really sort of looking at a back-to-business plan. Um, will it fundamentally change things? I don't know. That's difficult to say at this stage. Is it going to start to alter people's mentality towards how they approach work? Certainly. How regulators, exchanges, how you know all these sort of all these sort of counterparties start to look at our business will also simply have to change. I'm not convinced that this that this event immediately means everybody starts working from home, but I think like I said, management, brokers themselves and the bodies around it are going to start viewing opportunities differently.
3: I do think, Chris, as well, that uh, some of the technology that we're utilizing now was essentially already underway. Uh, FIS has been putting in a lot of effort for some time to bring in a number of new systems, uh, some of which we'll be announcing shortly uh, in terms of providing better access to pricing and uh, better mobile access uh, across the board to commodities information. So you might say that this trend was already starting before the outbreak of the virus necessitated everyone working at home.
0: Yeah, I guess it would be a really, uh, there's, a, there's an article talking about what, ha- what would have happened if this had happened, say, a decade ago, where we didn't have the technology in place. So we'd have probably had a much larger impact in terms of people being able to work or the ability to. Uh, Companies and you know brokers like ourselves to continue operating on such a such a way. Uh, Tom, what about in, in kind of in Singapore, the Asian markets? Do you think that this is going to really start pushing people into a different form of work, or are they already there as
1: we've seen? Well, as with, of, with uh, we you know, by the hand has been forced. We are there as at today. We're all working from home, but in the conversations that I have with everyone on a daily basis, people are are managing. They are able to do their job without too much of a drop in service i would hope to our customers or, or to their suppliers but what everyone does say is that it is so much easier to do it from the office so whilst it is possible to do it like this uh, i think you know the 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 broad opinion that i'm still receiving is that yes we can do it like this but it is much easier much more streamlined much more efficient uh, to do it from the office. So yes, we, we might see a, a change in attitude over many years to come or, and in the short term, but I think for some industries and I think ours will be one of them, the, the, the decision at the end of the day will be that this is better done from an office location, um, with the possibility to do it from home if required.
0: Yeah, I guess it's kind of just an ability to increase flexibility. So if it's needed to be done remotely, we can, if, but I guess nothing will ever beat the face-to-face conversation in terms of, of business and knowing a person rather than... Know, circling
3: back to, to our markets for one second, I do think it's also worth noting that the volumes being traded have not, in most cases, suffered. In fact, taken as a whole, most Q1 volumes are up. I believe Iron Ore is up about 21% year on year. Uh, the freight numbers are up about uh, 15% year on year as well. So, uh, you know, we are seeing we are seeing the volumes hold up despite this radical force transition first in Asia and now in
0: the... I guess in terms of, of an economic model, we've seen, i uh, have read about certain companies, there's a German supplier of ventilators who've cancelled an order with the NHS here in the UK because they are using them in their own country. There's obviously the whole mantra of of Donald Trump and America first. Do you think that actually this kind of crisis will focus eyes on more of a protectionist stance in the world economy rather than pushing to more of the globalisation we've seen from the 90s and the great boom that we've had? I think
2: the contingency plans of governments should be under scrutiny. Um, you know, it's different across the continent and across the globe. How the UK and how the US have dealt with this is, is very much different to how, you know, you have an interesting one, Spain and Portugal, how they compared. Spain is obviously in some quite serious trouble at the moment with the number of cases and the number of deaths, whereas uh, what's considered to be a porous border and Portugal next door, very low on cases and very low on deaths. So each government's reacted differently, and how the public have you know then participated in that reaction is also <laughs> going to be taken into account. I'm not sure protectionism is the way forward. However highly it's lauded by, you know,
0: the United States or, or, or anybody else. I guess perhaps, Tom, your best to talk about this. Singapore, South Korea, China, their fast moving lockdown uh, or guess what the West commentators would call draconian measures seem to have dealt with the, the virus problem very well.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean from a Singapore perspective, we're still yet to to reach a thousand cases. Uh and we had our first case um I think middle of January or uh late January certainly, um an imported case from China. Um but yes, the measures here have been in place uh for quite a while and, and to be honest, when this first started, uh and it seemed to be a China-centric issue. Um, It seemed like overkill in Singapore very early on. Um, But now looking back, it seems incredibly sensible. Um, The measures uh, that South Korea and Singapore are taking with regards tracking people um, and people's movements and restriction of movements are, are very severe. But I think I read over the weekend that the UK is now starting to have conversations with the mobile network providers to to start being able to track people under uh, people uh, that are uh, that may or may not have had the virus and and that that is uh, provided for under EU legislation so the EU the UK is catching up uh, but it's possible now that it is a little late um, to be starting to try and capture all these people that may or may not have the virus but Yes, it's been draconian here in Singapore. It hasn't really impacted our life to this point. It was only on Monday of this week that we finally closed the office in Singapore. Um, we've been able to go on life as pretty much normal until then. Um, most shops were still open. Many restaurants are still open, um, but bars, nightclubs, etc., have closed now. So whatever Singapore has been doing has been working. Um, uh, but I think they are very conscious of the sustainability of this these sort of enforced draconian measures um so they've been very careful not to go too early which I think is what some of the fear in the UK and Europe has been that in in sort of asian democracies people are much more use, or much uh, much much better acquainted with uh, obeying the rules to the letter as it were whereas european uh, mindset is uh, is is less adherent to policy i think uh and um there's definitely concerns within the uk government eu governments about people breaking measures because they get bored um so we will see how that plays out but it's worked so far
0: yeah i guess a view into the future is um for western countries we've seen what's happened in the east and i guess what measures they take next may inform how we deal with it Later on, because the biggest problem we're going to now encounter is we're in lockdown. How do you get out of it without causing more problems? So South Korea and China, I mean, China is starting to now come back online. Most of its major industry, I'm reading, is back online. Some of the smaller businesses still remain closed. But that is something interesting to think about in terms of a macroeconomic picture. Is China coming back online going to help compensate for some of the Western countries coming off into lockdown. Uh, and as Kerry pointed out, Q1 volumes were still pretty good. Uh, will that help us get us through this period of, of time? Uh, Kerry, do you want to pick up on that point? And, yeah. yeah,
3: I mean, I, I think that's obviously the, the big question for everyone right now. And, and looking at the, uh, the forward curves across most of our products, uh, I think that sense of uncertainty is very, very present given the, uh, the rather volatile movements of the last few days. Um, certainly on the freight side, people seem to be taking a slightly more optimistic tone for the first time in a number of months on the dry freight side. Uh, we see the back end of the curve getting a bit up now fairly aggressively. Um, the Q3 and the Q4 getting bought up quite a bit on the Cape size, for example today. Um, and so you have uh, a number of people placing a bet that, uh, that China's industrial production will offset the slowdown in demand from the West. I think that may be a bit premature, um, although you know it's hard to argue you could continue to short these markets, uh, particularly on freight, uh, any further than they already have been. But uh, at the same time, it seems difficult to imagine they're going to burn through their entire steel inventory and make up for the massive demand shock coming from the Western world uh, at the same time later this year. I'd welcome feedback from anyone else, though, on that.
0: I guess an interesting other picture is that you talked about dry freight, but wet freight seems to have uh, an odd scenario where because of the drop in oil prices and the increase in pumping rates have gone through the roof, especially on the AG China route, uh, AG Japan route on the clean side. And they actually have the opposite of what's usually uh, caused by seasonality, where Q3 is now marginally higher than Q4 rather than the opposite way around, which is the usual scenario. So, yeah, there's some odd commodity changes uh, for, for for specific markets, um, which are not quite right. I mean, I guess it's probably a good bit to go into some uh, specific commodities. Let's, let's let's start with oil, shall we? I mean, that is uh, a, yeah. but on its on its own, that is quite a story. Let alone with all the impact of the virus, dropping nearly seventy percent of its value in twelve weeks, which is the fastest drop in its its history. I mean, that is quite incredible, really, isn't it? i think it's incredibly significant i think as
2: you mentioned to me yesterday just anecdotally you know this lowest price in 17 years and it's having ramifications around around the world especially i was reading yesterday an article about how it's affecting nigeria and its currency and there's contagion into angola and all the rest of it i mean this this, this goes beyond the commodity world we're, we're so reliant on keeping an eye on that brent price um
1: you know it, it's huge I think what we may well see, I mean, this is obviously a, um, the oil price driven by the Saudi and Russia SPAT or the OPEC SPAT, um, but obviously there's an angle on the U.S. shale market being played out as well. Um, oil is now well below cost of production for shale, um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens to that market over the medium term. I imagine there's a lot of banks very, very exposed to that shale industry. Uh, so we could see some ripple through effects there. Um, I understand that physical oil was transacting at $10 a barrel yesterday uh, in some locations. Um, so with prices this low, I think you will start to see some very different geographic flows uh, over the next few years as sort of global trade flows maybe start to alter because the the economics of moving things from one location to the other have now fundamentally changed. Um, So it will be very, very interesting to see, particularly with the cost of freight that you were just talking about, Chris, uh, see what plays out over the the medium term. The short-term impact, who knows, we're still very reliant on oil as an economy, but as we touched on earlier, if we do start to transition towards more green fuel uh, as well, um, who knows what happens with global flows on the oil side. Yeah, I well, guess. Go on, Kerry. I think
3: it's. Uh, I think it's also worth noting that this is the first time in living memory that uh, during an oil price plunge, uh, we regard this as not unadulterated good news for the U.S. economy. Uh, in fact, it may end up being more painful, uh, precisely because of those uh, shale gas producers coming under pressure and the debts uh, held by the banks uh, for those shale gas producers.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's hundreds of U.S. oil companies going under, as being reported. I and mean, this is not good news for them. I mean, 2014, OPEC tried to get rid of them, they came back stronger. Is this the moment where actually the Saudis and those who have very low cost production and loads of cash reserves finally do kill off an industry and come back even stronger? And then, you know, Russia and Saudi will be the best of friends again. Is that what we think is going to happen? Well, the russian's going that's
1: to be the aim, but news today is that Aramco, Saudi Aramco, are having to sell one of their pipeline businesses to pay forward costs because they know their revenues are going to be so much lower. Um, so it's not without cost to them. Um, so it's a, a game of chicken, I suppose, at the moment. Um, if we knew the answer, I'd be a millionaire. But
0: uh... Exactly, exactly. <laughs> A game of chicken, at least something to uh, pass the time while we're all on lockdown. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, But I I mean, the Russians, uh, Russian oil has higher cost production than than Saudis. I mean, they're going to obviously suffer. And Russia's economy is very dependent on oil revenues as well. So there must come a point where this hurts everybody too much. The question is, is, at what point the US breaks before that happens, I guess.
3: Well, exactly. And I, and I also think that a lot of that's going to come from U.S. demand, which is utterly unpredictable right now, since we still do not know when the apex will come from the virus affecting the U.S., um, which right now is looking like the world's worst hit country, potentially.
0: Yeah, I mean, that New York alone has as many cases as the almost the whole U.K. and over a thousand deaths now. So it's really exactly. not looking good in the U.S. at all. I really- exactly.
3: And Until so we get some sense of, of how that's going to play out and what the time scale is, I think it's a fool's game to try and predict uh, exactly what the course of demand will be uh, and, and the course, therefore, of the, uh, the oil market later this year.
0: Yeah. Look, let's shift back to the Asia market again and talk a bit about iron ore. Because with as we discussed earlier, China coming back online, is this the point where you know, the iron ore market can start to regain some ground, get, regain some more volumes? Uh, Tom and Kerry,
1: Tom, do you want to start on that one? You're I mean, to be fair, the iron ore price has held up incredibly well uh, throughout all of this. Um, the fundamentals at the back end of last year were relatively strong uh, from a Chinese industrial perspective. Uh, so the forecast for this year was actually um, quite quite strong in terms of iron ore consumption, steel consumption. Um, and the view was that when uh one of the views was i suppose that when the virus hit and started to get very serious that as long as it could be curtailed and and recovered from relatively soon that all that was really happening was demand was being pushed down the road um that sort of opinion has been broadly reflected in the iron ore price it hasn't come off too much really it's, it's held very strong through the course of all of this uh, and what you're seeing now with China coming back online, um, the, the sort of dem- the, the engine of demand for global steel, uh, that is now coming back online uh, fairly strongly. PMI numbers from China today were uh, at 52 uh, off the back of uh, record lows last month. So um, the suggestion is that China is about to start pumping again but the problem you have now is that there's supply constraints as ports are shut globally or starting to shut globally a lot of mines have been shut down in Canada, South Africa um, so the supply side of the equation for China now is is the constraint rather than the demand um, so from an iron ore perspective uh, it, the price corrected a little bit yesterday and, uh, and Friday but it would appear that Chinese demand is there, uh, and it's a supply side issue for China now. Uh, so I would expect the price to, to stay, you know, where it is or above. To be honest, uh, unless we see significant um, improvement on the supply side from from sort of the global miners.
3: Well, just to add a slight devil's advocate here, uh, uh, I do think that the Chinese steel inventories are incredibly high right now. Uh, they remain at easily more than double uh, the inventory levels of this time last year, and uh, it's difficult to judge right now. I think whether or not those will be burned through fast enough as China gets going again to warrant a resumption in iron ore imports or demand for iron ore imports. I think that uh, that uh, that is quick enough to bring that price any higher, if you see what I mean. So we're weighing essentially a supply shock coming from the iron ore side in areas like South Africa and India against a demand shock that uh, includes both a very high level of finished steel inventory in China and of course the virtual disappearance of demand for finished products in the Western world for the foreseeable future.
0: So I guess that's not gonna have any uh... Beneficial impact on the freight markets, crying out to China to come back online and to move stuff everywhere.
3: We've seen, we've seen, as I said, the uh, the the dry freight markets get a little bit of a bounce just in the last couple of days, um, and certainly the back end of the curve has been bid up quite aggressively, uh, with the expectation that China's getting going again. I guess I would temper that with a little bit of caution personally, as we wait and see. As I said, can China burn through those steel inventories, and also? You know what level of supply disruption will there be from areas like South Africa, for example, uh, where initially we thought they were going to shut all mines, but then yesterday, I believe we just got the news that they are actually going to resume shipments from a couple of their coal and iron ore ports. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, it's difficult at the moment to, uh, to make an definitive call on this, but in a situation where you've got both a supply and demand shock, I guess you know, you're trying to call which one of those is going to win out. Um, I tend to side with Tom on the on the idea that it's difficult for the iron ore price to collapse from here, but whether or not it can be pushed up a lot higher than it is now, that I'm not very, very confident on. It's held up remarkably well so far.
0: Yeah. I guess talking about China and it's, you've seen the power there of state intervention as a, an economic driver. We've seen in the last week or so, the US Congress passed a $2 trillion stimulus package, the ECB have passed a 750 billion euro bond buying plan. Uh, you have that in the UK as well. Have committed a lot of state economic resources. Is that something that's going to help us drive forward? Because you've seen the amazing growth in China. You know, almost clockwork six, six and a half percent for how many years? And I, I think thinking, you have to remember
3: that unlike doing? the Chinese stimulus packages, the Western ones are going to go almost exclusively to small businesses and service industries. Uh, they must do to keep our economies going. Uh, and so I do not imagine that in and of itself will be a massive driver for industrial growth or for uh, for massive, let's say, infrastructure projects. Um, and so I think we need to temper that with a little bit of caution. That 2 trillion in the US is essentially going to service industries.
0: Yeah, but I guess if, if things don't pick up, there's the precedent there now for significant economic intervention. There could be more that which could help drive forward some of this economic activity after the doldrums of this uh, drawdown from the virus.
3: That's true. That's true. I think we'll have to wait and see what the effect is. I suspect the effect may be quite positive in terms of GDP growth, but looking purely at the, uh, the commodities markets, whether or not that drives a demand for raw materials, for example.
0: I guess it's something. It's a reason to tune in next week to uh, episode two see <laughs> what's happening with the the packages. Where are we? What's happened? Uh, how's China come back online? What's happening to those iron ore prices? Was Tom right? There's the big questions that's been answered <laughs> in episode two. I guess, Gary, yeah, to stick with you, um, I mean, to, want to talk a bit about what's happening in the air freight because that's been a market that was completely one way and then has shifted because of these virus effects.
3: Yeah, the air freight market uh, was looking quite negative for a long time uh, due to general oversupply. It was positively in the doldrums, and it has spiked extraordinarily, which may be counterintuitive given what's happening to the airlines, but what that is is actually a massive supply shock in that so many of the airlines have canceled all their flights or just shut completely at this point that uh, the air freight capacity worldwide has been uh, absolutely decimated. Uh, A lot of that air freight is carried in the bottom of passenger airliners, and uh, and those simply aren't flying at the moment. Uh, what we're seeing now is the large logistics companies like your Amazons now increasingly resorting to chartering their own fleets of aircraft, something that was already underway and has been massively accelerated. Um, and so while that adjustment happens, uh, we expect to see uh, very, very punchy rates indeed remain for air freight, although I think everyone understands that's a temporary scenario. Um, any sort of V-shaped recovery in the economy and in the airline business would ironically provide an almost inverse reaction for the air freight rates.
0: Yeah, I guess you've got a first. I mean, a lot of them are calling for for bailouts, especially passenger airlines who've grounded them. I was reading this morning, EasyJet, I think it may have been yesterday, have grounded all of their fleet. Uh, We've had um, airlines go into administration here in the US. I mean, there's a serious cash flow point to start before we even get to the situation of a pickup in economic activity, don't you think?
3: Oh, exactly, exactly. Even the healthiest airlines are being pushed to their very limit. You know, I was reading that uh, British Airways, I think IAG Group, has nine billion pounds in cash on hand, but on the other hand, they're burning through about two hundred seventy million a week in losses at the moment. So, you know, even the the, the cash richest airlines are under extreme pressure right now. Um, how this plays out, we'll have to see. Uh, you must expect the governments will continue to bail out the largest airlines, but will capacity return to the same level, I think
0: that's an open question um, after this crisis. Yeah, I guess, let's bring back to some more positive news again, Uh, well, for some people. Uh, Let's look at those freight markets and looking at fuel oil. I mean, that has taken an absolute hammering with the drop off in fuel oil price. I was noting this morning that the index print for uh, Ross Dam, 3.5% is now under $100. So that is Beautiful. a significant positive point for anyone who has a cost of fuel oil. And I guess that plays into the airlines as well, having much cheaper uh, air fuel. That's It'll something might help. help.
3: Again.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's something that could really help. We might push up in terms of TC rates and the dry freight because the they've got lower costs on those fuel oil markets. And it doesn't seem that that's going anywhere. And that's true also of the 0.5% fuel, because there was a huge difference on what's known as the hi-fi spread 320, 320 plus uh, in January, which is now shrunk down to underneath $100. That is much more, you know, uh, much closer to the original high sulfur fuel law and less of a shock for this uh, introduction of these IMO regulations. And, and that
3: is nothing but good news for ship owners as well. Um, that's why you've seen the Baltic dry indices uh, move into positive territory. The BCI is once again in positive territory today. Uh, uh, albeit limited positive territory, but it's the first time it hasn't been negative in, I believe, about two two
0: and a half months now. So Yeah, no, and even analysts talking to analysts here at FIS, I mean this has got some way potentially to go even further down on on the oil markets before this has any sort of recovery, regardless of what you know OPEC are deciding and discussing behind closed doors, and that could really help these freight markets as. Hopefully, the iron ore market gives it a bit of a kickstart there. These economic packages, even though they may not have huge amounts of impact in terms of commodity prices, but at least it keeps those companies going. It gives us that little bit extra of that little tunnel of hope that these things will start to shift and start to pick back up after falling straight into the floor uh, at the start of the year.
3: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Cool. Any other final points to bring on any of these commodities before we uh, wrap up for this week on any of our main market areas?
2: Not for me at the moment. I look forward to learning uh, a bit more next week's discussion.
1: Anything from Asia, Tom? No, that's all from me, I think, Chris. Thanks for hosting.
0: There no is And Kerry at home, anything funny for you before uh, we close off for this week?
3: No, thanks a lot, Chris.
0: Thank you very much. So join us next week. Uh, again for our podcast castaway we're talking about what's happening and we get to find out whether tom was right and what these impact of these economic packages are going to be and where we are in terms of the tragic stuff that's going around in terms of the, the virus outbreak but apart from that thank you very much to the three guests who've joined us from across the world and tune in next week